we're finally ready to get to the Benini. We've been beating around the bush, beating around the bush, getting closer and closer and closer and closer. We finally got to the point of the Tanya, the Benini. The Altreba wrote the Tanya to speak to the Benini. Of course, the Benini to whom the Alter Rebbe is speaking is not the Benini from the Gemara, from the Talmud, because the Benini from the Gemara is a 50-50, Nick, 50% Mitzvah, 50% Avedis. The Benini to whom the Tanya speaks is the Benini of the Zohar, which is corroborated by the Gemara Mesech Tebrachas. Right? If you're familiar with the Gemara Mesech Tebrachas, one of the details that the Gemara says Mesech Tebrachas is that the Chachamim were talking about Benini. So Rabbi Banachmeni, one of the greatest rabbis of all time, says to his disciple, Abaye, to gain Benini. I am Benini. So Abaye looks at his Rebbe and says, Rebbe, you're a Benini? If you're a Benini, we're all a bunch of Roshas. And the Lashav Machai So of course, the, the Tanya explained, and we're going to talk about it Mitzvah after Pesach in the next class, that Rabbi was wrong. Rabbi was in fact a tzaddik. But the mistake that Rabbi made was reasonable. Because the Benini of the Tanya, which is the Benini of the Zayir and the Gemara, Masech Tabrachas, is quite distinct, it's quite different from the Benini of the, the standard Benini of the Gemara and the Rambam. A Benini does not mean 50-50. A Benini means in between a Tzadik and a Rosh. Or to say it in different words, a Benini doesn't mean the average person. A Benini means the potential of the average person. And this considerable difference between where average people are and where average people could be. I, I always tell the story that I was once in an esrog shop, and the seller of esrogim was was talking about prices on an esrog. An esrog for fifty dollars, an esrog for a hundred dollars. An average esrog costs three hundred dollars, but I have exactly two average customers. <laughs> two average customers. So a banyan is average, but what's average? Average is not taking a cross-section of a population and seeing what the center is, the median is. A Benini is saying, look at the possibilities of people, and the Benini talks about the possibility of the average person. Now, the last two weeks, we talked about the Rosh, first Tzadik and Rosh. And we gave each one a definition. We created our own definitions. We defined Tzadik as an inspired person. And we defined the Rosh as a compromised person. What is the meaning of inspired? Inspired means he's always on fire, he's always hot, always warm, with Abbas Hashem, for feelings for the Abishta. When a person is inspired, they're so connected to the Abish that the idea of making a mistake, the idea of falling out, is not possible. When you're inspired, you're in love with Yiddishkeit. When you're in love with Yiddishkeit, you don't make any mistakes. The Rosh is a compromised person. What is a compromised person? Compromise means not only compromise means first of all he's not inspired. The Rosh is an uninspired person. He lacks that passion. And second of all, because he lacks that passion, he is given into weakness. We call that sin. How often? It doesn't really matter. Whether it's often or it's not often, whether it's many times, or it's even one time. The definition of a Rosh is not an evil man. In, in the Talmudic definition of Rosh, where you're more than fifty percent evil actions, you're a bad person. In the language of the Rosh, which is based on the Zoyar, a Rosh is not a bad person. A Rosh is a person who's given into weakness. 
And last week we spent the class talking about this. If you remember last week, we talked about the idea of bitla taiva. That in order to not be a rasha, realistically speaking, it's not enough not to sin. You have to become a master over temptation. Not just sin, temptation. You have to be able to control the human impulse to be tempted by things and to be drawn to things and to become weak to things. Because temptation, even kosher temptation, weakens us. And the weakness that comes along with kosher temptation will eventually devalue, deaccelerate into temptation which is not allowed. So to be not compromised, you have to be incredibly disciplined. And now we get to the Benyani. The Benyani is in between the Tzaddik and the Rasha. Namely, the Benyani is not inspired like the Tzaddik, but he's not compromised like the Rasha. He doesn't have the passions of the Tzaddik, on the one hand, but he doesn't have the weakness that defines the Rasha. The weakness which ultimately translates practically into weakness. To sin, the Benyani doesn't have. In simple words, the Benyani never sins. He wants to, he'd like to, but he doesn't. And to be realistic, to want to sin and not sin, it's simply not enough not to do it. You need a certain kind of inner fortitude, an inner strength. And that inner strength ultimately comes from discipline. Discipline, not just about not sinning, but disciplining, but by mastering the whole phenomena of temptation. The whole idea of bitl I explained this to you at length last week. Chsidim would... In, refused to permit themselves something which gave them pleasure, even though it's completely kosher, simply because it gave them pleasure. And the philosophy behind it was, this was a way of breaking the weakness associated with temptation. And when you break the weakness associated with temptation about kosher things, you've also broken the basic tendency of weakness associated with temptation about Avedas and you don't sin. There's no way to be a Benin without that. Without that discipline. So this is to this week's discussion with Hashem's help. We're starting the Benini discussion. Rest assured, we're not finishing it tonight because the Tanya is the book of the Benini. So we spent one class on Tzaddik, one class on Russia. We're probably going to spend a half dozen classes on Benini or approximately that. Quite a few. We're going to be spending some time because there's different types of Benini, different approaches to Benini, different aspects to Benini and so forth. But tonight we're introducing Benini. The Benini is an individual who we are calling not inspired, but not compromised. The tzaddik is inspired, he's full of feelings to the Abishnah. The Rosh is compromised, that means he's weak to the point where he doesn't control himself. The tzaddik is not inspired, but he controls himself. And the, sorry, the Benyani, I'm sorry, is not inspired, but he successfully controls himself 100% of the time. And of course, as the Tanya evolves, the next many chapters, we're going to encounter a number of different types of Benyani. And we're actually going to do, encounter different techniques to Bainani, or different approaches to, the, to this level. But now we're not into specifics, but into levels and into aspects and techniques. Tonight we're talking the basic issue. And the simple way for me to describe to you the Bainani is by using the marshal, the analog that I've used several times in the past, of the rich man and the poor man. You've heard this from me many times. And tonight it's appropriate. Tonight is the night for it. It's very apropos. What's the marshal of the rich man and the poor man? The marshal of the rich man and the poor man is as follows. A rich man has a shed full of wood. And every few days he takes his log cart out into the shed which is behind his house and he loads it up with 30 or 40 or 50 logs. He wheels it back into his house 
and he puts it next to his fireplace. The fireplace is always burning, there's always embers. And whenever he feels that the house is a little bit chilly, he opens up the grate, he throws in a couple of logs, the fire, he, spoke, he stokes the fire with his poker, the flames start to rise, the wood catches fire, and the room gets nice and comfy. An hour passes, two hour passes, the room starts to cool off again, he opens up the grate, he shoves in a couple of logs, and sure. Because his supply of fuel is adequate. A poor person doesn't have a shed, he doesn't have a log cart, he doesn't have comforts. He's a survivor. So what he has is wood. Where does he get the wood? He goes and he collects it. Some of his wood is dry and good for fuel. Some of it is rotted. Some of it is moist. Some of it is wormy. His, his supply of wood is what he can collect. And some of his wood is not even dead. Some of it is still moist because it's still living. When he wants to make a fire, he has a problem. His problem is, A, he doesn't have sufficient fuel. And when you don't have enough fuel, you have to keep the house warm for 24 hours a day. By midday, six hours into his day, he'll be out of fuel, he's going to freeze. B, the quality of his fuel is deficient, it's compromised. So he takes a whole different approach. The approach is he starts up his fire in the morning and he puts all of his fuel in the fire at once so that the wood has a chance to dry and that the house has a chance to become exceedingly hot. Very, very, very hot. And what happens is, in the morning, an hour after he's lit his fire, the home is so hot it's pushed unbearable. And the kids want to open the window, and mom and papa say, no, 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 don't open the window. And the kids say, but it's very hot. He says, you don't understand. This heat has to last till you climb into your bunks tonight and wrap yourself in your blankets. And at 5 o'clock this afternoon, it's going to be mighty cold in this house. So we're going to sit in this heat and suffer and perspire so that later in the day, there'll be just enough heat to allow us to maneuver, to navigate in this home until we climb into our bunks. And that's what happens. By midday, the fire is, has gone down. And by late afternoon, there's just embers. And by evening, it's virtually cold. But because in the morning, the fire was so hot, there's enough heat to sustain them until they have enough fuel to make another fire. This is called the rich man and the poor man. And of course, the nimshal to the rich man and the poor man is the tzaddik and the bainini. The tzaddik is rich, he has a sufficient supply of fuel. He just feeds his fire and his temperature stays constant. The definition of a tzaddik is two things. He loves God and he hates sin. Emphasis on the emotion. Tzaddik, according to the Tanya, is not defined by action alone. A tzaddik is defined by his emotional state of mind. A tzaddik loves God and he hates evil. The Altenebbe discussed in chapter 10, which was two weeks ago for us, that um, the degree of love for God and goodness is proportional to his hate for evil. So you can, if you want to know how much you love, see how much you hate. You want to see how much you hate, see how much he loves, and so forth. And imperfect tzaddikim don't love absolutely, and they don't hate absolutely, but it's all proportional. But the trademark of every tzaddik is his love for God and his hatred for evil. Why? Simple. When you don't have a yetzahara to constantly distract you, and bring you down, you can afford to be linear. You go in one direction because there is no other direction. That's the idea of a tzaddik being inspired. That's the meaning of the word a rich man. He has plenty of fuel because he doesn't have moisture. He doesn't have water. He doesn't have temptation to dampen his fuel. And as a result, tzaddikim are always on fire. They go up in the morning. They turn up the heat. They can play ball. They can go shopping. They can take a nap. Tzaddikim are in a perpetual state of avas Hashem and yiras Hashem, love and fear of God and Correspondingly, mi'us discussed with evil, 
And because of that state of existence, because of that condition, um, they're not afraid of sin. The Bainini, on the other hand, has both of these issues. Number one, he's not inspired like a tzaddik because he does have a Yetzirah. And number two is he has to deal with his Yetzirah. I can't avoid it. And the reality of life, you have to eat food, and you have to sleep, and you have to work, and you have to live in the real world. The Bainini cannot avoid the Yetzirah by sitting the whole day and all night in the Bismedic. It's a deal with the real world. So the Bainini, therefore, takes a different approach. And the life of the Benyani, I suppose, we could define it as a boom and bust. He invests so much in his davening. To a Benyani, davening is perhaps more important than to a tzaddik. Tzaddikim are plenty passionate when they daven also. But for tzaddikim, the davening is not that important because the Avas Hashem and Yiris Hashem is perpetual. They're rich. They can fuel their fire constantly. And consequently, the, the, the central place of davening as the as the furnace of their Yiddishkeit is not as critical as it is in the life of the Benyani. The Benyani is a person who invests everything in his davening and does everything in his power to develop incredible passion. In other words, davening for a Benyani is not reading from a book. A Benyani is an uninspired person that wants to be uncompromised. If you don't have inspiration and you want to be uncompromised, you're going to choose one period of the day to create inspiration. That's davening. And the Alter Rebbe says something quite interesting. He says, when the Benini prays, he is tzaddik-like. When the Benini davens, during the time that the Benini is in Maimed the Matzav of Tefillah, as the Benini davens, he's on a level of tzaddik. What does that mean? It means, uh, Benini goes through all kinds of preparation. Davening takes time. Of course, the hardest part of davening is not the actual davening. It's not even the actual meditation. It's the stopping everything else. The hardest, the biggest problem we have in our lives is that there's so much going on, we cannot stop and refocus. The, the hardest part of the davening of the Benyani is the Asura Mikan, to stop his life and to refocus on Hashem and to literally clear his mind from all those other things so that he can focus exclusively on the Ebishter. Once the Benyani has successfully done that, then he focuses through meditation, through his, his bondanus, to, to lock into the Ebishter and to turn on his furnace, to develop passions. And when a Benyani davens, he feels fire for the Ebishter. In other words, when a Benyani davens, he's inspired, which is what Tzadikim are. The difference between the Benyani and the Tzadik is the Tzadik doesn't have Yitzhak Harad that's functional on this level. So once he turns on the furnace, there's nothing to turn it off. The Benyani has Yitzhak Harad, they're just ready, willing, and able for him to finish praying. So, uh, while he davens, he is tzaddik-like. He has the inspiration that he gets from his meditation, from his effort. And the Yitzhahara is simply biding his time. As soon as this fellow finishes davening, there's the Yitzhahara to jump on him, to pounce on him, and to uh, remind him that pizza tastes good also. Or the phrase that we've used to use, pizza with extra cheese, is still available, it's still out there. So the Benyani's life revolves around this process. Periods of time when he invests everything in self-inspiration, which is what davening is. And he puts everything into his davening. During the time that he davens, he's tzaddik-like. And he hopes that because he's invested so much in this initial period of his day, that his davening should have these passions, he'll survive till he davens next. He'll survive till he'll have another opportunity to re-inspire himself. 
although he knows that the inspiration cannot be sustained, when he finishes davening and he leaves the shul and he goes to eat breakfast and he gets on the train or into his car and he goes to work, Yitzhahara is going to be back and with a vengeance. But he's hoping that the davening's intensity, like the poor man's home, will be warm enough, just enough to keep him above compromise until he davens the next time. And the Rebbe says several things. He says, first of all, in the life of the Benyani, there are these two periods. When the Benyani davens, he inspires himself, he invests everything to develop inspiration. And the rest of the day, he doesn't have any inspiration. He tries to survive. And the Al-Tarebbe uses two words to connote this. He uses two Hebrew words to indicate these two conditions. Al-Tarebbe says as follows. He says, a Benini, like all of us, endeavor, wish, to control the only one thing in this world which we can actually control. Our wives. I'm sorry, ourselves. It was a Freudian slip. Uh, I'm supposed to say our husbands. Uh, yeah, that was also a Freudian slip. I slipped in the slip also. Okay. Uh, I'll have to go sit on a couch and get analyzed. Uh, the question is who's going to pay whom? Um, the Bainini wishes to control the one thing we can actually control, which is ourselves. But the phenomena, the circumstance, the the uh, mood, the condition, the disposition by which a Benyani controls this varies. Part of his day he is called a king. And the rest of his day he is called a dictator. Part of his day he is called a melech, a king, and the rest of the day he is called a dictator. What's the difference between a melech and a dictator? A melech, a king, a king is somebody we choose to follow. We desire the king. We love the king. We we crown the king. We want to follow him. A dictator is a bully. He pushes us around. Says the Al-Tarebbe, the bane in his life is defined by this variant of Melech Moshe, king dictator, king dictator. Tzadikim are always kings. The Rosh is compromised, so he's really never a king. Like I heard one of my colleagues say once, the opposite of Melech is Lemech. Melech is a king, is Moyach, Lev, Kovet, brain, heart, and the lower third of the body. Lemech is Lev, Moyach, Kovet, the heart comes before the mind, then you're a Lemech. Lemech means a shlamazel. that's what it means, in, in other words. It's, it's, it's a failure. It's not a successful person. So the, the Bainini's life is defined by flux. In other words, if I had to define the Bainini, I would say the Bainini is a person whose life is moody. Tzaddik is always inspired, a Bainini is compromised, Russia is compromised, and the Bainini is not compromised, but he's in a state of flux. His life is defined by change. Certain periods of his life, he's sadic like when he's a king over himself, and for the remainder of the time, he's not a king over himself, he simply dictates himself. He forces himself. And where does he get the, the, the resolve? Where does he get the strength to succeed and be a dictator over himself? What remains, what stays over from the time that he davened when he was, he was kinging over himself. Al-Tarebbe says, when a Benyani davens, he invests everything. Because the Benyani understands that the inspiration of davening has to carry him till the next time he prays, and he cannot pray all day. Okay? Now, there's another thing Al-Tarebbe says. Davening is done at a special time. There's a time for davening, right? Some would say that in some shuls you wouldn't know it, but there's actually a time for davening. 
At the time of davening, called the Eisrach, it's a suspicious time, like we say in the davening in the morning. There's a special time for davening. In Shabbos Mincha, we say also Eidim and Eisrach. In addition, in addition to davening being at a special time, davening is a special focus, a special concentration. So the that combination, the fact that we're davening at a particular time, compounded by the fact that we're investing so much, results that a benyani could actually be at tzaddik temporarily. While a benyani davens, at least in theory, his yitzhahara, leave him alone. In other words, the inspiration can become so intense, so real, so locked in, so potent, that for a period of time, the benyani puts the yitzhahara to sleep. So while he davens, at least potentially a benyani is tzaddik-like. The minute he closes the book, and he walks out of the show, the first one to meet him in the street is the Yitzhahara. He says, thank you for the respite. While you were praying, I was relaxing and calm, let's go have breakfast. And that's where the trouble begins. The first thing the Yitzhahara tells you when you walk out of the show, by the way, if you daven with a lot of kavana, what do you think the Yitzhahara tells you when he meets you by the door of the show? That was an incredible davening. Oh, you're a righteous guy. You're a pious guy. Reward yourself with a donut. Huh? <laughs> After a davening like that, you're entitled. What's a donut for a rabbi like you? <laughs> you know, that's the Yitzhahara. He, he, he cashes in in every opportunity. There's, he has absolutely no scruples. There's, there's nothing he wouldn't do. He's got to win. So during the davening, you are like a tzaddik. And the rest of the day, you're a moshe. You're dictating. You're trying to fight with yourself to discipline yourself. And this is the life of a benyani. He's not inspired, but he's not compromised. He's not always on fire, but he doesn't give in to temptation. How? The key is he invests everything in his davening. He gets very, very inspired during davening and he allows the passions of the davening to carry through the whole day. In other words, I mean, listen, there's a room full of people here. Yeah, We are technically a minion. We have moments where we're very inspired. You could be inspired from davening. Another person can be inspired from learning Torah. Another person actually be inspired from doing a favor. And those moments of inspiration make us feel good. They make us feel Jewish. They make us feel like Yiddishkeit is a meaningful thing and a useful thing and a good thing for us. We don't have those moments all the time. We don't have those moments consistently. And we can't sustain those moments. But we live with those moments. Like a person who's surfing. Right? How does surfing work? Right? How does surfing work? You have a wave and a crest. A wave and a crest. Right? The whole idea is you got to catch the wave, which I have no idea how to do. And you have to survive the crest. So what do you do? When the wave comes, you stretch out your body, you make yourself into a sail. Right? Take up as much space as possible, and you ride over the wave. And when the wave falls, you crumple yourself into a little ball, so you shouldn't fall off the surfboard, and you wait for the next wave. This is what the Benyani does. He rides the waves, the waves of the times of davening, and he survives the crests. The crest and the time between prayers. The time when he's, he's not inspired, he's not in the mood, he does what he has to. And he doesn't do what he shouldn't do, which is we call not compromise, though he's not inspired, because he's living off the time of inspiration. That's how the Benyani operates. You got the basic picture? There are a couple of rules that you have to keep in mind. How does the Benyani survive? How could a person survive? That means to say, practically speaking, never sin. Never sin, never do what he shouldn't. Or to say it more correctly, never do what he doesn't want to. I mean, you know, sin is a religious idea. And it is a religious idea. God gave us mitzvahs. God gave us avedas. But it's not like we don't care. Sin is not something which is going to make us 
be disappointing to the Eibishter. Sin is something which makes us disappointed with ourselves. Nobody likes to fail. When you say to yourself, you're going to do this, and you don't do it, you feel terrible. When you say to yourself, I'm not going to do that, and you do do it, you feel rotten. Sin is weakness. And the Benini is never weak. He's not always strong, but he's never weak. He's not always inspired, but he carries the inspiration of the time of davening through the harder moments of his life. Bottom line is, he's a dictator. He f- controls himself. And the Altarebbe gives us a couple of things to think about as a way of explaining how this works. And the key is Azaihar. The key is Azaihar. There's a statement in the Zayar that says, quote, The mind governs the heart from birth and by nature. The nature of a person, and if you don't mind my candor, the nature of the person means the animal soul of a person, is designed by God that the mind should rule the heart. The mind rules over the heart, from birth, and the nature with which we were formed. You see to me the way the Ebishter made us. Which means even the Yetzir Hara of a Jew at the moment we're born. The problem with the Yetzir Hara after we're born is that we make the Yetzir Hara, we out Yetzir Hara, the Yetzir Hara. But at the moment we're born, the mind rules over the heart. Sometimes the mind rules over the heart means the mind educates and inspires the heart. The heart should be full. And sometimes the mind rules over the heart, barely surviving. The heart is tempting, schlepping you in a different direction, and the brain says no. And you have the strength not to listen, not to give in to the heart, and that's a bayonet. But there are a couple of keys. The first key is not to sin the first time. Because weakness begots weakness. Or to say it in other words, your nature is not to sin until you sin the first time. After that, your nature has been compromised. Your natural discipline, your natural ability for self-control, welcome, it's been a while. Your natural ability to say to yourself no and to not do it, or say to yourself, I'm going to do it, and make yourself do it, become compromised. The nature of weakness is that it begots weakness. I don't have to tell you this, we all know it. So the key to the Benin is not to sin the first time, because once the Benin sins the first time, he's messed up his nature. He's messed up his animal soul. The idea that the mind rules over the heart, even when the heart is at its weakest. That your brain says to your heart, don't do this, or do this, even though you're not in the mood at all, and you listen to your brain, is predicated on the assumption that your nature is as pure as it was the way God created you. Sin compromises the nature. And when a person sins, you cannot employ, mind ruling over the heart, until you correct the sin. We call that tshuva, as al is going to mention in chapter 17. So the key to being a Bainini is not sinning the first time. As long as we don't compromise ourselves, practically speaking, as weak as we feel, the natural control of the mind over the heart is sufficient. So if you want to think about this in realistic psychological terms, you would say this. Everybody understands the concept of mind control. I don't mean it in a, in a, in a psychic way. I mean it in a psychological way. Everybody understands the idea that I can tell myself to do something and I can do it. I can tell myself not to do myself in it. But, if I am a repeat offender, if I am a chronically weak person, if I've told myself ten times to do things and I have not, and I have not seen it through, chances of me seeing it through now are virtually nil. The idea that when my brain tells me I listen is predicated on the assumption that I haven't been weak in the past. 
And if I've been weak in the past, I have to first fortify that weakness before this nature that my brain can tell me what to do when I listen can be effective. That's the first note. Okay, Moyach Shalat Alev again means my brain during davening inspires my heart, teaches my heart. For the remainder of the day, it disciplines and controls my heart. The key to the effectiveness of this Zoyar is number one, never sinning. Not sinning the first time. And if you do, you got to fix it. And number two, it works especially when it comes to Yiddishkeit. In other words, the idea that my brain tells my heart what to do could work for an exercise regimen. It could work for a a very, very, very severe uh, uh, training that a person is doing for something very intense, very excessive, very precise and very exact. But it especially is effective when it comes to Yiddishkeit. In other words, my brain can tell my heart, run another mile. My brain can tell my heart, uh, don't lay down and go to sleep. But when it comes to Yiddishkeit, the effectiveness of the rule of the brain over the heart is is extra effective. Why? Two reasons. The first reason is as follows. There's an argument made in the Tanya, which is a which is a uniquely Tanyaic position. Maybe Kabbalah would agree with this, but there's a certain amount of classic approach. The Tanya says, and you'll see it in Mitzvah in chapter 29, which will be in about 29 classes from now, that good and evil are like light and darkness. The good inclination, the evil inclination are like light and darkness. Now, tell it to pleasure seekers. It's re- I mean, the Yitzhahara seems quite real. But this is a position that Rebbe establishes that evil is darkness. What does darkness mean? It exists when there's no light. As soon as there's light, it's powerless. The power of Liyumazeh, the power of the opposite of Kedusha, is only when there's a deficiency in Kedusha. When you put the light on, when there is good, evil vanishes. This is a position of the Tanya that says that evil is a non-entity. Evil's existence is a vacuum. When you fill the vacuum, evil disappears. Just like when you walk into a dark room and you're very intimidated and you flip on a light, you don't see a wrestle between darkness and light. The darkness vanishes because darkness is a non-entity. Klip is the same way. So the Rebbe says, in the battle between you and your Yetzirah, not about a diet regimen or, or preparing yourself for a boxing match, but about the fight with the Yetzirah, the rule of mind, ruling over the heart, is especially effective because you're really fighting with nothing. Kleep exists in your imagination. The temptation is real because you make it real. And when you refuse to see the temptation as real, you see you're fighting with nothing. This is a second point that the Alter Rebbe makes in our chapter, explaining when and how is effective. The mind ruling over the heart is effective. And in the next chapter, chapter 13, the Altarab is going to give us a third point. And the third point is what the Gemara says, We are not on our own. Right? The Gemara says, If you try to serve the Abish, the Abish helps you. If you want to sin, they don't stop you. But they don't help you. But if you want to do the right thing, the to helps you. And the Gemara says, if not for that help, we would never be able to win. And the way Hasidus would explain it, not for the fact that we all have a pintaliyid, a subconscious, an essence, which is godly, 
the idea that the mind rules over the heart would break down, would fail. So let me just summarize what I just told you. The Bainini's life, who's the Bainini? On the one hand, he's uninspired, but on the other hand, he's not compromised. Is defined by flux, by change, by moods, good moods and bad moods. The, the good moods, the heightened time of the Bainini is when the Bainini davens, which is we're calling that he's a king over himself. The remainder of the time, the rest of the day, he's he, the is bothering him. He's a, he's a dictator over himself. And it works because he lives from davening to davening, from wave to wave. And what allows him to survive the time in between the davenings is this principle of the Abish to design the person by nature. Nature means the nature of the animal soul. That your mind rules over the heart until you sin the first time. Sin the first time, you create a lot of trouble. And before you can go back to this condition of you have to uh, do tshuva. Number two, the reason is so effective, mind ruling over the heart is so effective is because you're fighting with the Yetzir Hara. And evil and good are not considered opposites. They're considered a thing and a non-thing. And number three, that the Ebishta helps. So for these three reasons, we can survive. So who's a Benin? A is a regular person. But he's incredibly disciplined his davening is an incredibly powerful event it's a real meaningful event and between davenings he remains focused he carries the davening with him all day long he appreciates the fact he's got to be disciplined as we discussed last week at length if we are people who live lives in pursuit of pleasures we are weak psychologically pleasures are not a sin not all pleasures at least are sin but the, the perpetual pursuit of pleasure makes us psychologically weak and people are psychologically weak have a hard time being strong when they need that strength. And the Benyani has that strength. And he survives with the sheer power of will and the brain power as we discussed uh, until this point. This is the basic message of the Benyani. But the chapter's not done. There's a couple more things you want to talk about. Isn't it uh, a fact that we are, I'm a new person all the time? Like every morning I wake up, I'm a, new, I'm a new person. Okay, why don't you answer your own question? Am I a new person all the time? Yes. What does that mean, yeah? Because your neighbor scratched the side of your truck. And you wake up in the morning and the side of your truck is still scratched. And you can decide. And you still and you know which neighbor scratched your truck yesterday. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that this is a 50-50, this is a completely objective choice to be angry again or to not be angry. Yes. That's your opinion. I don't think that's true at all. The opposite is true. We're incredibly connected. Every human being at every moment of their life is the sum total of their life's experience until that point. Fact. But can't you choose every moment of your life to be different? Perhaps in action. Perhaps in behavior. Right. But not in... Well, not so simply and certainly not very quickly. But certainly not in emotional disposition. You see... The, the Tanya's Benini, right? What the Alter Rebbe does when he introduces us to a Tanya, to the Benini, is he's defining a person 
who is consistent in action. Consistent in action. To be consistent in action requires a, a significant amount of inspiration. At a given moment, you could choose to do a given act. But to be consistent throughout life, you need a certain koyach. The, the most important contributor to that koyach is the time of davening. Because the time of davening, you're inspiring yourself. And the second issue is the idea that you have discipline. And discipline is not something that you choose. I choose to be a disciplined person. A person who's weak, traditionally, a person who has a habit of giving in to himself, whether the habit of giving to himself is going to sleep late, or the habit of giving in to himself is eating, with having bad eating habits, or the habit of giving to himself means to eating chocolate, or the habit of giving to himself is some other temptation, a person who has a, a past, who has a, a tendency to give in to himself, cannot simply say, I'm not giving myself anymore, it's just not going to work. An incredible exercise is going to have to take place to resensitize themselves. And in Yiddishkeit, that's called tshuva. And until tshuva is done, and tshuva is an emotional process, it's not just a choice, the sensitization that defines the Bainani as somebody whose nature, and remember the word nature, nature means the animal soul, is conditioned so that if your brain says no, you have the power not to give in to yourself, it's impossible. I'm, I'm not arguing with any of that. What I'm saying is instead the first step, or the first step is the desire to, to go there in the first place. Oh, for sure. Obviously. That's what I'm saying. The I first, can choose right, the, the right desire, and then I'll start the process of everything else. Why would I even want to do better? Why would I want to do too bad, become a better person, do tshuva. Right. It all comes from the desire first. Agreed. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. You're talking about resolution. Right. I thought you were saying that a person can actually choose to become a new person. And I said you cannot choose to become a new person. You have to make yourself a new person. And it's an incredible exercise. Well, the first step is... Well, I agree. Right. Sure. Of course. Of course. Yeah, we, um, you mentioned earlier that uh, the tzaddik is defined by his love and fear, uh, love of uh, Hashem and hatred of evil. Right. But um, wouldn't you, couldn't you also say that the is also has a love of Hashem as well, and maybe love and fear more than hatred for evil? But certainly, <coughs> I would think there's a component of that in Benini, this uh, you know, love of Hashem to... to um, want to enable him to uh, be consistent. If the Benini loved Hashem, and even if the Benini did not love Hashem, if he feared God, right. he wouldn't sin. Simple. Right. But, that's what but he can. But you know why he can? Because he's not always in love with God. He's not always afraid. He's in love with God and afraid when he's very focused. Right. When he's not very focused because he has other things to do. The emotion is not there. The will is there, but the emotion is not there. When the emotion is not there, the temptation is. Yeah, but isn't that, the Alter Rebbe says that the key to getting, the key to preventing one from doing a nevera is the fear of Hashem. It's chapter forty-one, but the fear of Hashem, though it's discussed in chapter forty-one, is also discussed as a discipline. It's not necessarily an emotion. And therefore, the Benini constantly struggles with the Yetzir Hoda. Yeah, yeah. The temptation. If, if you actually had emotional disposition towards God, whether it's a love for God, even a fear of evil, you would never sin. If you were actually afraid of evil, you walk out onto the avenue, and a car is moving at 60 miles an hour, yeah, yeah. 
and you visualize yourself walking into that car and your body trembles with fear of the consequences, if you were afraid of an Aveda like that, <coughs> you would have no trouble. But it's like a degree though, isn't it? It's not. It's, it's either you have it or you don't? It, it, sometimes you have it and sometimes you don't. Tzaddikim have it all the time because they don't have the Yitzhahara. Right, but I'm saying my fear of Hashem is, is, is um, sort of diminished because I have a Yitzhahara. That's that word. It's more than diminished. It's more than diminished. It's alternated. The, the two Yitzharim work, they, they're trying to occupy the same space. And it's not only behavioral space, it's emotional space. And emotionally, you either have one feeling or a different feeling. And the fact that the Yitzharim means that the emotions of the Yitzharim fill you for certain periods of the day. And during those times, not only you don't fear God, you're tempted. Right. And the decision to take to the Yitzharim, no requires a lot of self-control, a lot of discipline. And Moyach Shalat is not simply saying, I won't do it. It's the power to listen to your Moyach. Now there are several points that I want to say in conclusion of this Patek. The Atrebbe gives a number of little things for us to consider. He says this, number one, a Benini doesn't sin. For a Bainini not to sin, he needs a certain amount of discipline. As I explained to you last week, for a person not to sin and to have the necessary discipline not to sin, they need to be a person who doesn't only control themselves from sinning, they need to be a person who controls themselves from temptation. And temptation and sin are not identical. You understand that, right? Because not every temptation is a sin. But every temptation is a weakness. Kosher is not a sin. What's permitted is not a crime. But it's weakness. And for a Benyani to have the strength not to sin, he has to master not just his tendency to sin, he has to master his tendency to temptation. So Rebbe says, a Benyani is a person who likes temptation. It's kosher. I want to. It's permitted. Why not? And the Benini in his emotional self, in his animal self, is tempted by temptation. Temptation, I mean what's permitted. And he actually contemplates doing it. He actually wants to see, wants to indulge in temptation. He just tells himself no. In other words, his emotions, his heart, his desires are not just hypothetical and theoretical. His desires are, this is permitted, I, want, I lust it, I want to have it. But the Benini says to himself, if I am going to be sufficiently disciplined, that I'm going to be able to control myself, I have to control my temptation, even if temptation is permitted. So when it comes to permitted temptations, the Alter Rebbe says, the Benini lusts, he wants, he thinks about doing it in practical terms, but he stops himself. He stops himself because he knows that if he gives into temptation, he becomes weak, and he becomes weak, he doesn't have the power to control himself when it comes to sin. That's number one. Number two, the Benini is also tempted by sin. And there's a very, very big difference between being tempted by temptation and being tempta- tempted by sin. Temptation means it's kosher, but it comes from my animal self, it comes from my weak self. Sin means God said no, metodnish, it's not allowed. So Altarebbe says when it comes to sin, the Benini is tempted. The Benini is tempted. But he never contemplates it practically. In other words, 
It can cross the mind of the Bainini to indulge in a certain sin. But the Bainini would never entertain that sin as a practical thing. Never think, I'd like to do it, and think about doing it, and not do it. He won't even go that far. When it comes to temptation, he actually goes through the process of thinking about doing it, and just doesn't do it. When it comes to sin, the Bainini is inspired. The desires enter his conscience about the idea of, 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 of sinning, and he doesn't even think of it in practical terms. <coughs> now, the Altarebbe does not explain clearly why this distinction exists. He doesn't say why. Why is it that a temptation, the bane he not only thinks about, he actually thinks about it in practical terms. And a sin, the bane he thinks about, but he doesn't think about it in practical terms. He doesn't explain it. So I'm going to tell you my own opinion based on something that the Alter Rebbe said in chapter 8, earlier in the Tanya, chapter 8, Ches. Pardon? Because it's not Klippas Meg. And it's tying it to something I said before. The Alter Rebbe in chapter 8 says something very, very remarkable. Very, very remarkable. He says that the Yetzir Hara of a Jew, by nature, doesn't want to do Avedas. Not the Jewish Yetzir Toiv. The animal inclination of a Jew from birth does not want to sin. It wants to enjoy life. But there's a lot of life to be enjoyed before you have to sin. The teva, the nature of the animal soul of a Jew is that if it's permitted, he wants doubles. And if it's prohibited, he has no interest in it. And that's the word teva. The nature of the person, the animal of a Jew, without the godly soul, but without our compromising it further, permitted what's tempting and permitted, he would love to enjoy. It's allowed. A sin does not appeal to him. Why? Because he has what's called a Jewish demon. Shade me, shade in your dirt, now the Rebbe calls it. An animal soul that doesn't want to sin. The problem is, when we give in to temptation, we weaken ourselves. And the weakening effect that comes from giving into temptation can ultimately accelerate into actually crossing the line from temptation into sin. So the Rebbe says, the Bainini has never sinned. Therefore, there's a difference between his emotional connection to a temptation and to a sin. His emotional connection, temptation, temptations are kosher, he wants it. His emotional connection to sin is his emotions are aroused, but he never thinks of it in practical terms because the nature of his animal is not desiring of it. This is what the Alter Rebbe says. There's a difference between the way your animal entertains temptation and the way your animal entertains sin. But you must remember, none of this works if you're a sinner. When you've given in, when you lose the discipline, those rules break down. Those those. Separations. The idea that a permitted temptation have one kind of relationship with and a sin have a different kind of relationship with assumes that you're constant, that you're strong. When we give in, then we have no choice but to do chuv. And there's another thing the Alter Rebbe says, a third point the Alter Rebbe makes. And the third point the Alter Rebbe makes is as follows. Fantasy itself can be a sin. Fantasy itself can be a sin, just like there's a sin in behavior. And there's a sin with words. There can be a sin with fantasy. If you get a thought in your mind which is halakhically inappropriate, not permitted, you can't help that. Why can't you help it? Because you have no control over your subconscious. Tzadikim, because they're inspired, have some control of the subconscious, even if they're not perfect tzadikim. In other words, they don't get 
thoughts of sin because they're so busy with the Abish that the thoughts of sin are not interested, not, not issues to them. But the Bainini, at least when he's not davening, most of the day is uninspired, so thoughts of sin enter into his mind. If the Bainini becomes aware that he has in his conscience a thought about sin and he continues to think it, the fantasy itself constitutes a sin. So Alter Rebbe says, just as a Bainini shouldn't give in to acting on his temptation, and just as a Bainini shouldn't give in to thinking about acting on temptation for sin, the Bainini is not allowed to perpetuate the fantasy. If it's a prohibited fantasy, if it's a thought that the Jew is not allowed to think, the moment the Bainini becomes aware that it's in his mind, he has to push it away. Those are three separate points. The differences are very small, but they're three separate points. The first point is the Bainini's relationship to temptation. Temptation is not a sin, it's just weakness. The second is the Bainini's relationship to sin, thinking about a sin vis-a-vis doing it. And the third is the very fantasy of sin can be a sin in itself. And the Bainini deals with all of these issues in different ways. Temptations, the Bainini thinks about doing it, but doesn't. Sin, he, he doesn't even think about doing it. And when a Bainini becomes aware that there's a negative fantasy in his mind, he has to push it out right away. And this is something which is very, very important. If you sit and think about something you're not supposed to think about for a long time, you shouldn't be surprised that you have no control when it comes to doing it. Like I've mentioned to you many times in Hasidus, they bring a very interesting Rambam. Mind ruling over the heart is a Zoya. Right? And the idea of as I explained to you, has the two conditions I outlined before. During davening, you're a king, and for the remainder of the day, you're a... Uh, a dictator. A prince. Yeah. <laughs> a slave. Um, so the Rabbi Hasidus brings a Rambam. Which is Bemis, an amazing Rambam. What's a Rambam Paskas La'alocha? The Rambam says that when a soldier goes to a front, he shouldn't be afraid. When a soldier goes to a front, he shouldn't be afraid. Just based on a Pasuk. Now telling a soldier is going to a front not to be afraid is like walking across a highway with cars whizzing by 60 miles an hour and being sure everything's going to be fine. It's ridiculous. In war, two things happen. One kills or is killed. You know, some soldiers wish they'll get wounded. So they're, they're at least one thing, they're not dead. War is a, is a, is a zone of death. Rambam says it's a love that arises, it's a biblical prohibition, a soldier at war is not allowed to be afraid. And the Rambam says, how can you tell a person not to be afraid if he's going into a war zone? It doesn't make any sense. The Rambam asks the question. And the Rambam gives the answer. You cannot control your emotions, says the Rambam. But you can control your thoughts. If you think thoughts of fear, you will be afraid. If you don't allow yourself to think thoughts of fear, you will quiet the fear. Now understand, when you walk onto a battlefield, you don't have to meditate on the fact that this is scary. It's guttural, it's instinct, it's called the old part of the brain, the very core of a, of a, of a, of a, of a living thing is to flee from danger. So when you come into a, a battlefield, and of course the whole business of a soldier is the discipline not to run away. That's what soldiers do. They're disciplined to stand there and take it. That's what makes a successful army. There's so much to be afraid of. But fear is perpetuated by the thought of fear. And fear can be quieted by the refusal to think. So Rambam says you have to not allow yourself to think 
don't allow yourself to think. Ramam says, you should forget about your wife. You should forget about your family. You should forget about your business. You should lean on God and trust in Him. And in effect, turn off your brain. Because if you think, you'll, you'll literally uh, immobilize yourself. You'll be able to function. So the Ramam teaches us, in a battlefield, which is the most extreme circumstance imaginable. And this is what the Benyani does. The Benyani deals with his emotions by dealing with his thoughts. You cannot control your emotions unless you're a tzaddik. But you can redirect your emotions by saying to yourself, this fantasy, this thought, I will not think. And there's one last point in the Vedic. One last idea mentioned in chapter 12 which is the most realistic and the one none of us want to hear. And that is that part of being a Bainini is also The Bainini is an uninspired person, but he's not a compromised person. It means to say he's not always in love with the Ebishter, but he doesn't allow himself to sin. Guess what? How we treat other human beings is half of Judaism. <laughs> it's not just Benadlamakim. It's Benadlamakhaveri as well. How we relate to other people is also... Um, part of Yiddishkeit. And as everybody knows, the human nature is, it's a lot easier to be pious when it comes to God than it is to be pious when it comes to man. I remember the Rebbe once by Fabringen told a story. And he asked a question. He said this, I was the son of a Rav, the Rebbe said. I was the son of a rabbi. And as a consequence, I was privy to many dinatated. People came to the house always to have judgments. I was also privy to people coming into the house with shyness and Halach. So he said, as a child, I had a very great curiosity, he said. A man comes into my father with the lung of a cow. The lung of a cow is like a small car. It's huge. The lung of a cow. It weighs 150 pounds. It's massive. And he brings it into the Rav, and he shows the Rav the polyps. He shows the Rav the sirchis. And the Rav has to decide if it's kosher, if it's not kosher, and so forth. The Rav says, Treif. The man lost 10 rubles. Let me say he lost $1,000. He walks out of the rabbi's house and doesn't say boo. That same man comes back four days later. He's in a dispute with his friend over 50 kopecks. A, 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 a minuscule amount of money, relatively speaking. And the Rav Paskin's like the other fellow. And he's furious with the Rav. And he curses the Rav. And the rabbi is an artist and doesn't know what he's doing. And he's not qualified to Paskin. And the Rebbe says, I grew up in the house of my father. I said, I could have said, this same man, two days ago, my father cost him $1,000. He didn't say boo. Now my father's costing him $50. And he's furious with him. I don't understand. $50, a lot less than $1,000. So the Rebbe says, the only answer I was able to come to as a child is he doesn't mind losing money. But he can't stand the prospect of somebody else getting the money that he thinks is his. In human nature, in human nature, it's much easier to be frum by another mamakam al we be pious and righteous when it comes to God, when it comes to our fellow. It's not only because we don't want to be cheated. It's because we can't suffer the possibility that someone can get something from us. And therefore we could be incredibly frum when it comes to our relationship with the Eivishter. And when it comes to people, we're very, very compromised. Now today gives a list of human emotions when it comes to other people. Grudges, hatred, jealousy, anger, and uh, I suppose a jealousy of some sort. Kepeda. However you translate those words. These are emotions that are so a part of our lives. In Yiddish, the Nishfar Ginen. 
you have something, it was never mine, you have nothing to do with it. The very fact that you have and I don't have, I cannot tolerate the fact that you have. The human nature, when it comes to interpersonal relations with other people, is quite ugly. And Al Rebbe says the Bainini is not just someone who's from in his relationship with the Abish, that a Bainini is someone who's from a relationship with human beings. And part of that religiosity, part of that frumkeit, consists of the fact that we have to discipline ourselves in our relations with other people. And, says the Alter Rebbe, we have to discipline ourselves in how we feel towards other people. So if at a particular moment in your life you're suddenly filled with jealousy, or hatred, or anger, or a grudge, justified or unjustified, the same discipline that the Benyani employs, with the same flux, with the same Melech and Moshe we discussed before, the same boom and bust, the same wave and crest that we discussed earlier is necessary in the relationship between a person and another person. When you find yourself being jealous, when you find yourself being hateful, the same Abish who said, don't sin, said, don't think and feel these feelings. And the same Abish who says that it's a sin to indulge in a fantasy, says it's a sin to indulge in thoughts and emotions of hatred. So just as the Bainini would push aside the thought of sin, the fantasy of sin, because A, the fantasy itself could be a sin, and B, it could bring to a sin, the same is true in our relationship to other people. So obviously we're not going to act on that hatred, we're not going to act on that jealousy, we're not going to act on that grudge, because that would be, the, that would be the, a sin on a gross level, on a, you know, on a self-effacing level. But we don't even permit ourselves to think and feel those thoughts and feelings. And again, you remember, a Bainini cannot control his feelings. He can control his thoughts. And by controlling his thoughts, he can indirectly control his feelings. How do you control thoughts? By changing them. How do you stop thinking about something? By changing them. By replacing it. It keeps coming back all the time. So you keep replacing it. I want to tell you what I tell my Talmidim. My Talmidim comes to me with questions. You know, I I I get into these ruts where I have no control of myself. I say, take out a tillum and say ten kapitlach tilim out loud. The reason you want to say it out loud is because you want to create a different emotion. Because the only way to change the thought ultimately is to quiet, not the thought, but the feeling behind it. The reason you have a problem changing thoughts, it's not the thought, it's the emotion. It's the emotion. It's the so you, you, you start thinking a Mishnah, two seconds later you're back to those feelings. So the truth is, you could change your thoughts. Force yourself to think on Mishnayis for five minutes, ten minutes, the emotions will subside. If you cannot, Zog Tilim say Tilim loud, replace that emotion with a positive emotion, and the thoughts you will pass also. Understand what you say? Even if, of course, Tilim. Tilim is uh, Tilim's wonderful. Yeah, they say, and, and what, if, what if the emotion is still stronger? The thought is still stronger than that? <laughs> And remember, I, I understand. I, 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 I understand not only because you're telling it to me, but because I know a person pretty well who has the same kind of issues that you have. I just don't want to mention his name because it may be a little personal. Yeah, this is life. Avoid this Hashem is not easy. It's possible, but it's not easy. It was never meant to be easy. And then the Altarebbe finishes the pedigree with a final point. And the final point is, he says, when you have a relationship with people who have in fact wronged you, and you are upset at them. As a Bainini, first of all means you don't think those negative thoughts against them. And second of all, you're going you 
behave towards them precisely the opposite as they behave towards you. Like Yosef and his brothers, says Al Rebbe. We all know what Yosef's brothers did to Yosef. And we all know about Yosef's reaction. The Tater tells us that when Yosef's brothers, when Yosef Yankavino passes away, and Yosef Atzadik, Yosef's brothers were afraid that now Yosef is going to take revenge. So they came to Yosef and they lied. Why did they lie? Because Yankov Avinu never thought for a moment that Yosef would take revenge. It didn't cross his mind. But now that Yankov had passed away, the brothers were afraid that Yankov would take revenge. Yes. Yes. Yosef would take revenge. So they sent shluchim, emissaries. And they said to Yosef, to the shluchim, Kai Tziva Avicha Lefnei Moisei Leim. Avicha Tziva Lefnei Moisei Your father commanded before he died such and such. And he says, Forgive your brothers. Yankov had never said it because it had never crossed Yankov in his mind. Then it says the brothers came themselves and they cried to Yosef at Tzadik. He never died. It says the Yosef was crying. He was crying about the accusation. He was crying about the fact that they suspected himself. I'll finish up the penny by saying the status of a Benini isn't only that he doesn't think the negative thoughts of another person but he repays evil with good. I guess Yosef was a tzaddik gomer, tzaddik ne aliyah. The Alter Rebbe says, Lil made me Yosef Amechav, to learn from Yosef a tzaddik. Yosef was on a little bit of a different madrege. And the people who wronged us didn't sell us into slavery either. Yosef had a bit of a bigger grudge. Okay, anyway, in conclusion, we can all admit that being a Benyani is uh, quite a, a trip, quite a test. Okay? We're going to get to chapter 32 in Tanya in about 30 weeks. So I'm <laughs> going to ask you to go home, take out a Tanya in English and in Russian, whichever works for you, and read the second half of the chapter. 30. 32. 32. Pedig Lev. Okay. talks about Abbas Yisrael there. In the second half of the Pedig, he goes into the laws of hating. And pretty much he eliminates almost everybody, for almost everybody. Balchova. First of all, this we could relate to. We just can't do it. <laughs> In other words, this is saying what we could be. We're Balchovas. Balchovas are hiding. Sadiqim, excuse me. Balchovas about six times a day, but that's another story. Um, the Tanya was written for Benin. The Tanya has a supplement. The supplement to the Tanya is the Igenis Achov. Altrever wrote a, a supplement to the Tanya to explain, to be practical, if you will, to the people who are not in the Madrege of Benini, with the Igenis Achov. But we learn the Tanya, the way Hasidim Chabad look at the Tanya is we learn the Tanya to hear the truth. And the truth does not make accommodations for us. Once we hear the truth and we feel terrible, we try to find a place in it. Okay, and in Mitzvah Hashem, when we finish the Tanya, we'll do the Yigeres Hachova and we'll provide that, that, that supplement, that addendum, that appendix. Fair enough? Okay?